We have a good number present. We appreciate the presence of everyone. We're delighted that you're here. We invite you to come back and be with us this evening at 5.30. I hope you've got your Bible with you. And if so, I encourage you to get your Bible and be turning to the book of Philippians. We'll be spending our time there in just a few moments. And I want to begin with this question. And the question is, are you happy? Would you describe yourself as being happy? And if you were being interviewed, would you say, well, yeah, I'm a, I'm, I think generally I am, or at least most all of the time, I'm a happy person. My question is, are you really happy? I'm not talking about a put-on sense of happiness that's fake, where we put on a front or veneer for people we're around. Deeply we're saddened, deeply we are, in, are just feeling terrible. But we put on a front of acting chipper and we're happy because we want people to think that. I'm not asking about that. I'm asking, are you really happy? I'm talking about the kind of happiness that's not based upon the external and upon the material that if this was okay and that's okay, I think I'd be happy. But are you genuinely and really happy? And you say, yes, I'm happy. How do you define happiness? If somebody then asked in the interview to you, what does that mean when you say you're happy? What would you say? What is it that's going on in your life that you say, this is what I mean by being happy. I have happiness in my life. What is that? How would you define happiness? And then the question is, what have you done to be happy? You say, I'm happy. Here's how I would define it. What would you do to be happy? Because there are others where that's not true. What did you do to be happy? What choices did you make? I want to suggest to you that there are many people that are not happy, including some Christians are not happy. They're not happy at all. There are some that are living seemingly miserable lives, even among God's people who seemingly just live miserable no matter when you talk to them, everything's miserable. They have more bad days than good days. Every once in a while, you'll catch them on a good day, but most of the time, you could just bet you're going to catch them on a bad day because that's what they have most of the time. Everything is terrible. Always. They're not happy. I want to suggest to you that sorrow and sadness are a part of life. That's just part of it. And I don't want to give an impression here that the Christian can just live this chipper life all of the time where we're always happy and we're just above board and happy and we're just overexcited and we're just that kind of happy person. All of the time there is sorrow and sadness that's part of life. For example, Jesus was said to be a man of sorrows. That described our Lord. And that may describe us at times as well. Job said his days were full of trouble. I don't think Job was just this overexcited chipper guy. All of the time he was full of troubles, he said. Jesus, in fact, wept. I don't think he was real happy on that occasion. That was at the, the tomb of Lazarus. And even in the midst of him knowing he was about to raise him from the dead, the text says Jesus wept. He wept over Jerusalem, you remember. 
as he entered upon Jerusalem in John 20 and in Matthew chapter 21. Paul had sorrows and grief for his brethren, his kinsmen according to the flesh. When he looked at the Jewish nation and recognized they were in lost, he said, I have continual heaviness and great sorrow in my heart. He has grief, he has sorrow, he has sadness in his heart. He shed tears over this nation that he loves so much. And in fact, there are times God wants to make us sorrowful. You say, God wants me to be happy all the time. Really? Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians that he intended to make them sorry by the first letter. He's writing by the inspiration of God. There are times that God wants us to have godly sorrow. In other words, there are times God intends for you to hear a message that brings you to tears. You say, God wants me to be happy. Well, that occasion, God's wanting you to have some sadness and sorrow. So there is sadness and sorrow that's part of life. But what I want to suggest this morning to you is that you can make a choice to have good days. Let's go to Psalm 34. Hold your finger, put a marker at Philippians. That's where we're going to spend our time. But let's go to Psalm 34. If you don't want to turn there, it's on the screen before you. This great psalm says, come you children, listen to me, I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Something about the fear of the Lord. That's really what this psalm is about, by the way. Who is the man who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Who among us would like to have many days that are good days? You say, well, I have a lot of terrible days. Would you like to have better days? Would you like to have some good days? Well, here's the psalm talking about that. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are over the right and his ears open to their cry. There's something in this psalm about having good days. You can make a choice. Now that psalm is quoted in 1 Peter chapter 3. For he that would love life and see good days. Do you enjoy life? You say, well, I wish I just could just get up and, and uh, on a general basis, on a daily basis, and enjoy life and have good days. He that would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking to see. He's quoting from Psalm 34 and applying it to New Testament Christians. You can make a choice to have good days. Now let's go to Philippians. The book of Philippians gives emphasis on rejoicing. Now rejoicing in this context, as we're going to be looking at, is not this put on fake giddiness where perhaps you've been in a store and there is this... this uh, person working there that's just over the top and just overexcited and this waitress that is overexcited and they just, just seem like they're on 20 cups of caffeine. They're just all excited and they're so happy, happy. And it's a fake and it's a put on. That's not what this is about. This is not, a, everybody now get all excited. Let's just put on this front of happiness. This is genuine happiness, rejoicing. The book is actually not so much about rejoicing, it's about commitment to Christ that produces the rejoicing that's real and genuine and true. So let's take a run through some references to rejoicing in the context of the book. Let's go to chapter 1, verse 26. I just want you to see the concept and we'll look at the context in a moment. He said that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Christ. 
Paul wrote saying he wanted their rejoicing to be more abundant. Let's go to chapter 2, verse 18. For the same reason you also be glad and rejoice with me. You ought to be glad and rejoice. Let's go to chapter 2, verse 28. Talking about Epaphroditus, when he comes, when you see him, you may rejoice. He said, I'm sending him, and when he comes, you're going to rejoice. There's something that's going to make you rejoice about his coming. Let's go again to chapter 3 and verse 1. Finally, brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Let's go to chapter four and in, or chapter 3 and in verse 3. And he said, For we of the circumcision who worship God in spirit rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Let's go to chapter 4 and verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. And this is a short book. And notice how many times he's talking about rejoicing. You see, the book says more than just be happy. It is a book that describes the kind of life that makes one rejoice. It is not merely a book that is saying, here's what everybody needs to do. You just need to develop. Just do it. Just be happy. But here's the kind of life that if you live will be the kind of happy life wherein you do rejoice in the right kinds of things. So this morning, let's talk about living the happy life. Study from Philippians. Let's make a run through some things that we see in Philippians that if you do this, this brings genuine happiness. So if your happiness is based upon, for example, material things. You say, I was happy, but then I, I lost my job or I lost some things. I had a good car and I had to sell it and now I'm not happy anymore. Then your, your, your happiness is based on the wrong kind of things. The happiness that's found in the book of Philippians is not based upon material. It's not based upon the external. It's based upon spiritual. You want to live the happy life? Let's look at the book of Philippians. Let's start with this. Let's go to chapter 1 now. The, the happy life is a life wherein you're growing spiritually. A happy life is a life wherein you're growing spiritually. Let's go to chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. Look at verses 9 and 10. Paul said, and I pray that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and in all discernment that you may approve of things that are excellent and you may be sincere without offense until the day of Christ. Let's go ahead and get verse 11, being filled with the fruit of righteousness, which is by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, what am I seeing about growing spiritually? Well, first of all, what I notice here, that you are continually growing because, notice he said, that you may abound yet more and more, verse 9. Here is the idea of continually growing. It's not that it's a picture that you grow and then you reach maturity and then you don't grow anymore. So it doesn't matter how, you, how old you are, how spiritually mature you are. It doesn't matter about any of that. It's the fact that you are continuing to abound and you're continuing to grow and you're continuing to progress. Here is the idea of doing more than is required as if bare minimum would suffice. So if this is the bare minimum, then do more than that. I'll get him if he gets close. Because y'all are paying more attention to him than you are me. <laughs> As if the bare minimum is all that would be required, he's saying do more than the bare minimum. Do more than the bare minimum. So abound yet more and more. So if I'm ever increasing, even to the point of overflowing, he said, abound more and more in the cause of Christ. Grow spiritually, but furthermore. 
Notice that here's the area in which we grow. We need to be growing in things, for example, like love, that you abound yet more and more. Notice at verse 9, that I pray that your love yet may abound more and more. I should be growing increasing in my love for God, in my love for spiritual things, in our love for one another. So if I'm working in these areas, I'm loving God more. I'm loving spiritual things more. I'm loving other Christians more. That's going to contribute to my happiness. Notice also in verse 9, he mentions the idea of knowledge. That you may abound yet more and more in knowledge. So I'm growing in what God's Word has to say. I'm reading and I'm studying and I'm learning. And I know more than I knew before. That contributes to my happiness. Notice verse 10. Here is the discernment wherein I'm able to discern that I have knowledge and discernment that I may approve of things that are excellent. Your footnote in the King James will say distinguish things that differ. It is the idea of like distinguishing metals that are different. Not all metals are the same. You need to know how to distinguish them. All metal is not metal. The same kind of metal anyway. So it's the idea of distinguishing things that differ. If I have discernment, I can know what's wise, and I can know what may not be wrong, but it may not be wise. I can know what's poor judgment. You see, that's growing. Not only in knowledge, but I'm growing in discernment, how to make application of that knowledge so that I have some discernment in my life. That contributes to my happiness. The result is, when I'm growing continually, I have wisdom now. Show me the child of God that you would say, I I think they have wisdom. They have been continually growing. The weak Christian doesn't have wisdom. And furthermore, they're ready for judgment. Look at the end of verse 10. The end of verse 10 says that you may be without offense till the day of Christ. Here's what I want you to see. That if I'm growing spiritually, that makes me happy. God said that would make me happy. I can rejoice because I'm growing spiritually. say, But my job isn't going well. Doesn't matter. You see, my finances are not what they used to be. Doesn't matter. Because I'm growing spiritually in things that really matter. That's what makes us happy. But here's the second thing in the context. I'm talking about living the happy life. The happy life focuses on Christ and not self. Quite often, one of the reasons we're not happy is we're focused on self rather than focusing on the service of the Lord. So let's go to chapter 1, beginning at verse 19. I know it's a little lengthy reading. Begin at verse 19 through verse 26. For I know this, for I know that this will turn out for my salvation through your prayer and supply of the Spirit of Christ Jesus, according to the earnest expectation and hope that nothing shall I be ashamed, that with boldness as always, so that now also Christ may be magnified in my body, whether by life or death. For me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. For if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor, yet will I choose what I shall choose, I cannot tell. For I am hard pressed between the two, having the desire to part and be with Christ, which is far better, nevertheless to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Christ Jesus by my coming to you again. Now notice in verse 20, Paul's focus is on magnifying Christ. His focus is not on Paul, it's on Christ. Look at verse 20. Look at verse 20 with me. He said, 
I shall be ashamed of me, beginning at the middle of the verse, but with all boldness as always, so that also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. In other words, if I live, I'm going to be serving Christ. But if I die, I'm going to be with Christ. So either way, living or dying, doesn't make any difference to me. He said, in fact, I'm, I have a hard time choosing which I'd rather do. If, if, I, if I die, I go to be with Christ. If I stay here, I can serve him and help you. But it doesn't really matter because it's all about serving Christ. That was his focal point. I want you to notice this. His focus was not on himself. Look at chapter 1 and verse 7. He's in prison as he writes. He's in chains. He's in bonds. Verse 7. He's in chains. Verse 13. This is one of Paul's prison epistles. Notice his attitude in the letter as you read. If you did a cursory reading through Philippians, you do not see a woe is me. I have it worse than anyone he doesn't write a letter telling you, I'll tell you what, I've got it bad. I've got it worse than you have. In fact, I've got it worse than anybody else. Woe is me. Look how bad I've got it. I am so depressed. I am so, I am so sad. I have a terrible life. He doesn't mention that at all. He mentions he's in chains. I want you to notice, he's not saying that if I die, I'll be out of this misery. But if I die, I'll be with Christ. His focus is on Christ. Here's what I'm learning from that. Focusing on Christ makes us happy. Show me somebody that's miserable and I'll show you somebody probably focusing on themselves. They're probably focusing on themselves. Show me someone who's truly focused on the Lord. And they're dedicated and they're devoted to serving the Lord. And I'll show you somebody that's probably happy. But here's the third thing in this context. Living the happy life rises above life's problems. Living the happy life rises above life's problems. Now, Paul faced problems, a lot of problems, in fact. You say, you, say, you don't understand, preacher. My, my, my life is just full of problems. Well, have you been in prison? Are you in prison now? Well, no, probably not. In chapter 1, verse 7, he was in chains. We've already alluded to verse 13 as well. He's in chains. He's in prison. That's a problem. But that's not all. Notice there were critics of his. Look at verse 15 and 16. He said, if I indeed preach Christ, uh, for some indeed preach Christ, even from envy and strife, and some also of goodwill, the former preached Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains. Apparently there were some who thought, let's pretend that we are followers of Christ and we'll go over and preach this message of Paul that it may make it harder on Paul. The critics will be even worse on him. Perhaps the prison keeper will make it harder on him. Perhaps the emperor will make it harder on Paul. He had his critics. They were out to destroy him, make it harder on him. He's in prison. He had his critics. Notice chapter 4 and verse 12. He said there had been a time when he was in need. He was lacking food, maybe, and, and clothing or shelter. They was in need. He needed some things. He needed the basic necessities. And there are other times that he abounded. He had, he had an abundance. He had plenty. But there are other times he didn't. Paul had problems. You have problems. And I have problems. But I want you to notice that he rose above that. You say, what, what do you mean he rose above it? He's still preaching the gospel while he's in prison. He wrote this and other prison epistles while sitting in a prison cell. 
See, he's rising above the problems. Rather than, woe is me, what can I do? I'm in prison. I, I'm hindered from doing the will of the Lord. I wish I could be out preaching, but I can't do that. So he sits and he writes. And he writes Philippians that we're reading from now that he wrote while in prison. So was the book of Hebrews. So was the book of Colossians. Those are prison epistles. Notice in chapter 1, verse 3, while he's suffering problems, he's concerned about others. Look at verse 3. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. He didn't just reach out and say, I want y'all to pray for me. I'm in prison. I'm suffering. I want you to think about me and, and worry about me. He said, I'm worried about you. I'm praying for you. Every time I think of you, I stop and pray to God and thank God for you. And notice now in chapter 1 and verse 18, in spite of the problems, he's rejoicing. What then? Only that in every way, whether present, uh, in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and this I rejoice, yes, I will rejoice. But Paul, you're in prison. Yeah, I'm in prison. You, 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 you have critics, yes, but, but I'm still happy and I'm rejoicing. He rose above the problems. You see, rising above the problems makes you happy. You get down into the problems and wallow in the problems, then you begin to realize your misery. You say, well, how can I be happy? Rise above the problems and focus on things that are important. Let's talk about living the happy life. Living the happy life means you live in harmony with the gospel. Those who are living the happy life are those who are living in harmony with the gospel. Let's go to chapter 1, verse 27 now. Chapter 1, verse 27. He said, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast, in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. I want you to look at this phrase at verse 27, that your conduct be worthy. Your conversation, one translation says, the manner in which you live, be worthy. In other words, live, be in harmony with the gospel. Here's what I want us to see. The gospel is for doing, not just believing. You say, that's a simple point. Yes, but I think that's a point we often miss. I think some have the concept, the gospel is to be preached, and that's what we're to believe. And you're right. The gospel is far more than that. It's not just something that's to be delivered and I'm to believe it. The gospel is for doing. Let's go to James 1 and verse 22. James 1 verse 22. You are familiar with this context. Let's go to the book of James chapter 1 and in verse 22. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Now we're going to finish, we're going to read further, but to stop there for a moment. In other words, I'm deceiving and I'm lying to myself if I think, you know what, I heard the message. I don't have a problem with it. In fact, I think I pretty much agree with that. And I'm going to tell the preacher when I leave today that that was a good lesson. I'm a hearer. Are we going to put it to practice though? For if anyone, verse 23 says, is a hearer of the word and not a doer, is like the man that observing his natural face in a mirror, and he observes himself and goes away and immediately forgets what manner of man he was. But he that looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, not being a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. What am I learning? The gospel is not for hearing only, but it's for doing. I see the same thing in Matthew chapter 7, beginning at verse 20, 24. This is the story, you remember, in the Sermon on the Mount, as Jesus brings that sermon to a close. 
And I want you to notice at the end of that sermon, beginning at verse 24, he talks about two men that are builders. One builds upon the rock and one builds upon the sand. And the man that builds upon the rock is a man that hears the saying and does that. He's obedient. He's a doer of the word. The man that builds upon the sand is the one who hears, but he doesn't do. And his house will fall. The gospel is for doing, not just believing. See, I must live as the gospel directs. Now, by the gospel, by the way, Galatians 2.14 tells me the gospel involves more than just hear, believe, repent, and confess, and be baptized. It involves the whole scope of God's revelation. You say, I, I didn't know that. Look, consider Galatians chapter 2. When, when Paul told Peter he was not walking upright according to the gospel, he wasn't saying he hadn't been baptized. He wasn't saying he hadn't become a member of the church. He wasn't walking in harmony with the revelation of God. That's what the gospel meant there. So what I'm learning from that is that I must live as the gospel directs in the things that I say. See, the gospel not only tells me to be baptized, it tells me how to use my tongue. If a man doesn't bridle his tongue, control his tongue, his religion is vain. You see, the gospel also tells me that I am to how I'm to treat other people. I'm to treat others the way I want to be treated. It not only tells me to repent of my sins, it tells me here's how you treat others. That's part of the gospel. You see, something else about the gospel, it tells us how to behave in our homes, how the wives are to be submissive to the husband, how the husband is to lead her with gentleness and treat her as an heir to gather the grace of life and treat her accordingly. And furthermore, Ephesians chapter 6, bring your children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. In our passions and our desires, you say, well, what's that about? Look at 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 6. Add to your faith, virtue to virtue, knowledge, knowledge, temperance, self-control. We control those passions, desires, and thoughts. That's part of the gospel. And so here's what I'm learning from that. You see, following the gospel makes me happy. You want to be happy? Then watch what you say. Watch how you treat other people. In your home, try to follow the will of God. In your passions and desires, rein in and have self-control. That contributes to happiness. You say, how do you know? Philippians 1 verse 27 says, in the context of rejoicing, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel. Let's go again. Living the happy life is the kind of life where one strives toward unity. One strives toward unity. Let's go to Philippians 2 and in verse 2. Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. That describes unity. Let's talk about the nature of unity. The psalmist said, behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Now, you better understand and appreciate that if you've ever been in a circumstance, particularly a church, where there has been disarray and there has been division and there has been, been strife and there's been ugliness. Perhaps you've been there. If you haven't, take just a moment, bow your head and thank God you hadn't seen that. Because some of us have where it's a dog-eat-dog dog and there's bitterness and there's, there's anger and there's, there's slander, even coming to literal fistfights among brethren. And the text says the nature of unity is it's good and it's pleasant. 
You know what that means? That means when there's strife and there's turmoil, it's not good. And if you've been there, I don't even have to tell you, it's not very pleasant. That's the nature of unity. Now here's a picture of unity here in Philippians 2. Look at verse 2. He said in verse 2, fulfill my joy being like-minded, having of the same love and of one accord. Bedak says that means harmonious. It's like a musical. Suppose this were a band. And if we're going to do anything halfway decent as a band, what that means is we need to be harmonious. We need to be playing the same key. Or it's not going to work. As we sing songs together, if one is singing one tune and one singing a different tune, and one is singing in this key and another one is singing in that key, and one singing these words and another singing different words, it is in disarray. But we, if we are singing as we should, we're singing harmoniously, working together. That's a picture of unity, harmonious. But that's not all. Look at verse 2, same verse, and then we'll back up just a few verses. He said, and of one mind... Now he's writing to a church which has different individuals. I don't know how many were there. But there's a plurality. They had elders and deacons. So at least several families were there. And they are to function as if they had one brain and one mind. You think about that now. It's not like one mind is going in this direction, but another one is going in that direction, another one going in this direction. And we're pulling and working against one another. We're functioning as if we all have the same brain or the same mind. We're thinking alike. Back up to chapter 1, verse 27. Chapter 1, verse 27. Striving in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Chapter 4 tells me there were two women in the church that were not of one mind. They were not harmonious. Yori and Sintiki. They needed to be of one mind, as we see in chapter 4. But now here's the plan for unity, as per this context. Look at chapter 1, verse 27. All follow the word. Be let your lives be as it becomes the gospel. You say, was that talking about unity? Let's see, let's see. Let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that, whether I come to see your absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind. It has everything to do with unity. Here's part of the key to unity. All follow the word. You see, if I'm following the word and you're following the word, then we are harmonious and we are of one mind. We're letting the mind of Christ guide us. But that's not all. We give up our pride and our selfishness. Look at chapter 2, verse 3. Here's how you have unity. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, strife or rivalry, the, uh, the uh, uh, Holman's Christian Standard Bible says. You give up your pride and selfishness. Well, I think only. Look at verse 4. Verse 4. Verse 4 says, Think about others. Don't just think about yourself. Let each one look not out for his own interest, but on the interest of others. Let's go back to Yodi and Sintiki. If Yodi would think not only about herself, but think about Sintiki, and if Sintiki would not think only about herself, but think about Yodi, you would have harmony and unity. And then furthermore, verses 3 and 4 says, 
And you say, I didn't see these words. It's the idea of being willing to yield. In other words, I'm not just thinking about self, but I think about others. I need to be willing to yield where I can yield. Give up some principle, but not a principle of faith, not a principle of doctrine. But here's something that I hold dear to that's important to me, but I can give on that so that there is some unity and some harmony. See, a happy life is one that works toward unity. Being united makes us happy. If you've ever been in a group where, where there is disarray, nobody seems to be happy, I want to tell you. But you're in a group where there is harmony and there's peace and there's love shared one for the other. People are generally happy. They rejoice as per the book of Philippians. But one more time. The happy life involves what? Being humble. Humility is part of this happy life. Let's go to chapter 2. We're not going to read all 11 verses. But I do want to look beginning at verse 2 through 4, a description of humility. First of all, let's go to chapter 2 beginning at verse 2. He said, fulfill my joy being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. We've already talked about. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but with lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Look, not every man on his own interest, but also on the interest of others. Here is a description of humility. When he says, I'm going to come to the group. And I'm not just going to think about myself. I'm going to think of what's best for the group. And I'm going to try to, to work with everybody. That's what I'm going to try to do. Now let's go back through those verses again and see if that's not what he's saying. That we need to be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord. I'm going to try to function as if we have one mind. Work harmoniously. I'm not going to try to sing a sour note over here. I'm not going to do that. I don't need to be, have selfish ambition. I don't have strife or rivalry try and, and be conceited, only think of myself. But I need to have lowliness of mind, bring myself down and be humble so that I can get along with other people. That's a description of humility. Now here's an example of humility. You say, that's, that's a tall order to be, be humble like you're describing there. Yeah, it is. Here's a perfect example of humility. Beginning at verse 5. Look at verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. In other words, have the attitude that he had. Well, what, what's going on with Christ in this context? Well, first of all, verse 6 says he is and he was and ever will be deity. He is not related to God. He is not close to God. He is God. Look at verse 6. Look at verse 6. Who being in the form of God, that is he being deity, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. What does it mean robbery? If I stood before you saying I am deity, I'm guilty of robbery. I'm taking the title of God and robbing it from him and keeping it for myself. But when Jesus takes the name God and says I am God, that's not robbery. He didn't steal it. Because it belonged to him. He's deity. You say, okay, what does that have to do with anything? Well, he's deity, and yet, what goes on? Well, he took on the form of a servant. Verse 7. He was in the form of God, but he took on the form of a servant. That's humility. That's not all. He appeared as a man, verses 7, 8, and 9. 
came in the form of a man. He humbled himself, the text says, and became in the likeness of men, verse 7. He's deity. But he came to earth and became like man. And, and, and he became obedient even to the death on the cross. That's humility. Classic. Supreme example of humility. And so here's what I'm learning from that. Being humble makes us happy. Show me an humble person that's deeply humble. And you say, this is, this is the epitome of, of humility, this person here. And I'll probably show you the person that is happy. Show me someone that thinks a lot of themselves and is not willing to yield. It's going to be their way. They're inflated with self-importance. And they probably are miserable. They're probably not happy at all. Living the happy life. What does it involve? Well, growing spiritually. Focusing on Christ and not self. Rising above life's problems. Living in harmony with the gospel. Striving toward unity. Being humble. And you say, well, I saw some things in Philippians you didn't get to. You're right. We're going to do that tonight. We're going to look at seven more points from Philippians about living the happy life. You want to live happy? Come back and be with us tonight, 530. We're going to continue the thoughts from the book of Philippians and continue our list. There may be one or more present who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins and acknowledge your faith and be buried in the waters of baptism that you might have the remission of sins? If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and while we sing?